0: We thought the war, at last, was ended.
1: Today, our days of peace begin. We thought our joys would be unending. We thought our light
0: would never dim. The skies are strange. We feared.
1: Evil does not sleep.
0: It wakes. Beyond the darkness, tempting shadow to bury us all beneath the mountain. He has not one name, but many. blood if you're the sour <laughs>
1: We can survive this! Fight with me.
0: Each of us must decide who we shall be. There can be no trust between Hammer and Rock. Eventually, one or the other. Surely break. Welcome back to the Film89 Podcast. This is episode 85. I'm Sky, and joining me tonight is one of the horde of regular Film89 guest hosts. He's a comic book expert, a seasoned podcaster, and a student of all things fantasy, and in particular, the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, making him ideal for tonight's subject matter. It is, of course, Mr. John Arminio. John, welcome back, sir.
1: Uh, Sky, I have a suspiciously mined ore for you to take a look at. Would you be interested? (laughs) Of course.
0: And tonight, John and I are going to be giving you our opinion and analysis of the first season of Amazon's billion-dollar series, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, which debuted on September 1st and ran for eight episodes, culminating in last week's season finale. Now, John... You are a huge fan of Tolkien's work, his books, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, The Silmarillion. But what about Peter Jackson's Middle Earth films? Because am I right that you've never had the opportunity to talk about those publicly on a podcast before?
1: Uh, that is correct. I have not. You know, I do sort of have a complicated relationship with those movies. I remember, like, when those first came out, you know, they were huge events, like, with everybody else. And I have very fond memories of, you know, going to those movies and enjoying them with my family, like, you know, over the holidays. But I think pretty soon I turned sour on them because of the—a couple deviations they took from Tolkien. But eventually I realized that I was being incredibly pedantic— and being too cool for school, and I'm now, I have now flipped back and am completely in love with them. So I've been on a bit of a journey uh, with those movies myself, and so I'm now totally in camp uh, Peter Jackson with with those films.
0: Well, is that all six, or is it? Oh, uh, just the <laughs> the yeah. Lord of
1: the Rings, the original ones. I think the most interesting aspect of the three Hobbit films is wondering what Guillermo del Toro would have done with them. Yeah. And how it's interesting that he was like, "Mm, this lake is soiled. I have to get out before it drags me under.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, you know, myself, Richie, Bill Skerry, and Adam Rakoff, you know, we talked at length about the first film in in Jackson's trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, last year. Mm -hmm. And it'll be no surprise to our listeners that we've got a second and third episodes planned. The second one is not that far around the corner. We love Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy just unequivocally without any reservation. You know, I had my own kind of complicated journey with those films, but it got to the point where I was just a total devotee of his films and thought they were incredible. The Hobbit films, they're kind of like a shadow of the greatness of the Lord of the Rings trilogy for various reasons. But when it was announced, John, that Amazon Prime Studios had acquired the license to produce a show set within the second age of Middle Earth, the events of which were summarized in just a few pages of the appendices of The Lord of the Rings and in, I think, more explicit detail in The Silmarillion, what were your initial feelings following that announcement? just very
1: suspicious you know the fact that they didn't bother to get the rice to the cimmerillion and are only adapting the appendices a listing of dates and events it just spoke to how they're not concerned with actually depicting a good story let alone adapting a work of tolkien they're just interested in the lord of the rings branding and willing to throw a billion dollars at that brand so it it didn't inspire me with much
0: hope to begin with. Do you know, John, I think one of my main concern was following the announcement, and given the fact that you know it was made quite a while ago now, was the fact that it was Amazon Studios, and to me they just weren't established and they hadn't produced anything of any quality, which gave me that much confidence. Like if at the time you'd said that Netflix were doing it, given the fact that say what you will about Netflix, they do cast quite a wide net. But some of the stuff they bring in is great. You know, whether it's buying in third party series, you know, like Cobra Kai, which they took from YouTube and, and Black Mirror, which they took from Channel 4 and kind of nurturing them. I think they were a lot at the time safer bet than Amazon Studios. And I, I thought, well, is this going to have any connective tissue to Jackson's yep. trilogy from a creative point of view?
1: Yeah, You know, I just speaking of Netflix adaptations, the Sandman adaptation, I think, is excellent. You know, that's. Probably my favorite comic book of all time, one of my favorite works of art, period, of any medium, and I did not want an adaptation of that. Like, I didn't need it. But it really surpassed all of my expectations and all of my reservations. Kudos to Netflix for accomplishing that. So in a year that gave me a Sandman adaptation and a Lord of the Rings adaptation, I'm very surprised that I am way more over the moon about
0: Sandman than Lord of the Rings. Hmm. So what about earlier on this year, then, when those initial trailers were revealed? How did they serve to sell a, you know, to a Tolkien purist such as yourself, this forthcoming show?
1: You know, I... I'm a sucker for trailers. Like, every trailer looks good to me. So I'm not... A very objective when when it comes to that. Like, you know, it looked great and I think a lot of people were really nitpicking about specific characters. Like I remember um, you know, one of the mystics that sort of revealed in, in the later episodes. I think people were interpreting that character as Sauron and so were like making jokes about them looking like Eminem, but that turned out to be sort of a fake out anyway. So I think there was a lot of over dissection of the trailers initially. I tried to
0: avoid that, especially knowing how much of a sucker I am for trailers like that. Yeah, I I just kind of took them on face value and I, I couldn't but help compare them to what i was expecting in terms of it being like jackson's films and how similar they appeared to peter jackson's original lord of the rings trilogy i gotta say john if we're going to break it down into the three distinct trailers which were released i thought the first two just filled me with sheer dread i i I just i remember talking to you and bill and 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 richie and just saying this is not going to work for me if this is the show they're giving us i just don't think it's it's going to be any good but then that third trailer came And I don't know if it's the fact that that trailer focused on different characters and showed us things that looked to be ripped wholesale in terms of visuals from Jackson's films in particular. That kind of final shot which showed us the Balrog and it wasn't a reinterpretation of the Balrog. It was the Balrog as conceived and designed by Weta Workshop. Immediately then it was like, okay, I think this trailer's come about due to the huge fan backlash from the first two. And I think maybe they're showing us the parts of the show which will appeal to fans of the films. And I'm sure that this trailer is playing down a lot of the stuff that the other trailer showed. But that trailer did fill me with a bit more hope and ultimately going into a show like this because I'm such a huge fan of Peter Jackson's films. And I can even kind of detach myself from the Hobbit trilogy because I do understand to some degree where those films went wrong. And the fact that Peter Jackson just didn't have anywhere near the amount of pre-production time that he needed and you know there were problems during the shooting of the films they had to take a huge gap because it got to the point where they you know the scripts just weren't complete and they weren't complete to a a satisfactory level there are other things i just don't understand john like i always thought it was a studio idea to split that pretty slim book the hobbit into three films but it turns out that it was actually the decision of peter jackson Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens. It's actually documented in Ian Nathan's book, you know, which I made reference to in in the, in the Fellowship of the Ring episode. Ian Nathan yeah. was obviously given a kind of ground level opportunity to document the making of those six films, and and it's there in his book, a book which you know he'd be made with the help of Peter Jackson and, and everyone involved in the making of that film. And I just don't understand from a creative standpoint how and they they did such a good job of adapting this huge you know thousand plus page book into three phenomenal films you know which were made you know, on on a relatively small budget when you look at how much footage they put up on screen like, you know, 11 hours worth in the extended editions. And Those films cost around 300 million dollars to make back in 1999 to 2003, which is just remarkable.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's so strange that you say that because, you know, one of the most oft shared behind the scenes stories of Lord of the Rings is Christopher Lee talking about how much it would buoy him to see Jackson just pouring over Tolkien's text. Whenever he needed reference or inspiration or direction, he would turn to the, the, the book, The Lord of the Rings. So it's so odd that then Peter Jackson himself would sort of toss out the text of The Hobbit in order to expand it into three movies.
0: Yeah, and, when, and it's not just expanding it. It's introducing new characters like Evangeline Lilly's character of Toriel. Yeah. The character that didn't exist in the books. It, it's introducing Legolas into the story just to satisfy the people who love him from his original trilogy. And it's, it, it was decisions like that that, just from a creative point of view, they just veered too far away from a book, which ultimately is it's far simpler. Than what the Lord of the Rings trilogy was in in book form. You
1: yeah, know that's why I love the the nineteen seventy seven animated adaptation. Yeah, like it's it's so you know slim and streamlined and yeah. it's fun. It, it's a kids' movie because it's from adapted from a children's story.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think Jackson and and Co just could have done a, a better job if they just released a three and a half hour long film of The Hobbit mm-hmm. and just not introduced all of these extra characters and if they just let it move along at a sufficient pace and not drag out scenes which didn't need to be expanded upon and just to put for superfluous, superfluous action scenes which just weren't done with anywhere near the sort of conviction and, and execution that similar scenes were done 12 years before in, in, in the the previous trilogy made so yeah but I, I can I can detach I, I can compartmentalise those films the, the first three Lord of the Rings films and, and the Hobbit films and I'm also able now to do the same with this show. So, John, now that we've had eight episodes with a runtime of roughly nine hours, has this show lived up to the huge expectations of what a multi million dollar production based on easily one of, if not the most important works of fiction ever written, should be? I
1: gotta, I gotta say no. Like, I'm just ultimately disappointed. I I don't hate it. Like, Bam McCreary, who does the music, just does an exceptional job of, of scoring this, you know, epic. Uh, so, all praise and honor to him for his work, really shouldering the emotional burden of, you know, all the writing shortcomings. And, you know, it it looks spectacular, especially in a time when Marvel movies, their special effects seem to look worse and worse and worse as the years go by somehow. But this series just looks amazing. You can see the money being thrown at the screen, the CGI, the practical effects, it, it just all looks beautiful. You know, the orcs look better than they do in the Lord of the Rings movies. Like, I'm just astonished at how good the makeup is in, in these episodes. But the writing is just not there. You know, this uh, fantastic YouTube channel in Deep Geek that, you know, goes into like fantasy and movies and, and novels pointed out that the show is built on a mystery box structure. So a series of secrets that are slowly or all of a sudden in the last episode revealed to the audience. And that's a very J.J. Abrams-like way of telling the story.
0: This is Lord of the Rings done by J.J. Abrams. It's done with a modern sensibility whereby instead of... And I don't expect anyone adapting this. They're not really adapting books. They're just adapting, you know, vague storylines that Tolkien... You know, wrote about into a television show but i don't expect them to sort of use the similar timelines to what tolkien used because as i said on the fellowship episode tolkien did have a habit of of writing scenarios and situations which took place over far too long a period the opening battle of the fellowship of the ring the battle of the gorlad plains in the book that was a siege that lasted seven years mm. it didn't need to last that long when when Gandalf uh, initially left Frodo and then came back uh, that was years later the the timelines in Tolkien's universe are are just stretched out over such a vast period that it's not simply just not going to work either on film or or in a television show but the story that this show is trying to tell and it's also kind of mixing up the different ages of Tolkien uh, of of Middle Earth like the, the first age the second age and the third age and it's kind of taking events happened in different ages and it's putting them all in the second age and what it risks doing when it does that not only is it contradicting Tolkien's written work but it's also deviating from the stuff that we've been told in Peter Jackson's films
1: yeah you know there's one thing that just one detail that annoys me a lot about what this condensing of the timeline does is that Anatar, the Lord of Gifts Sauron in Disguise was with the elves in Ereregion making rings for centuries.
0: That was in the Second Age, wasn't it?
1: Yes, yes. So in in the Second Age. Now, for, where... for people who don't
0: know, Anatar was Anatar is Sauron. He had taken elven form, and he was he was kind of he was a smith, wasn't he? He was um, a, a creator of of jewelry and trinkets and and such things. He was obsessed with that, and kind of started to show a sort of coveting of such things. And some of the elves saw through that and they didn't like it and they thought that it would lead to other things and they sensed something wrong with that. But then there were other elves, I think like Calabrimbo and, and, mm-hmm. and others, who were on board with his thinking and f- kind of fell under his spell because ultimately that is what he was trying to do. Yes, he exactly. was trying yeah, so- to, you know, over hundreds of years or over, over centuries, he was trying to work his way into the elves and to gain their trust and, and to corrupt them all because ultimately you know in the show it says he says he wants to save middle earth and that's what he wants to do in his mind he yeah. wants to unite all of these factions but what he wants to do is he wants to unite them under his rule yeah so in a way he is he is bringing order to all of this chaos but it's not going to be order with freedom it's going to be oppression and it's going to be you know under his ultimate dark rule
1: so yeah in that plan in order to eventually forge the one ring and use that ring to rule Middle-earth. He forged hundreds of rings yeah. in Eriador, building up to the Nine Rings for Mortal Men and the Seven Rings for Dwarves. And after he was kicked out, that's when the elves forged the three elven rings. So in The Hobbit, when Bilbo finds the magic ring and brings it back to Hobbiton and like shows it to Gandalf, it's natural for Gandalf to assume it's one of the many hundreds of rings in Middle-earth. Yeah. So if we see in this show that there's only the rings of power, it makes Gandalf look very stupid to not immediately be terrified at the fact that Bilbo has a magic ring if there are only, you know, sixteen of them.
0: And the other thing, John, is Gandalf himself. He he's one of the what they call the Astari. Yes, yeah, the Astari. And there were there were five of them that came to Middle Earth. Now, they came to Middle Earth in the third age, yeah? Yes, yeah, so... Gandalf, Salaman, Radagast the yeah. Brown, and the two blue wizards. The blue wizards, yeah. yeah. Already, we know by... It's not like we didn't suspect when we first saw him, but, you know, the the being that fell from the sky, uh, and that scene was absolutely jaw-dropping. You know, the scene of the uh, the meteorite. Yeah, know, it looks spectacular, Yeah, look sure. looks stunning. Turns out that that character, through a quite clumsily shoehorned-in piece of dialogue, which calls back to something he says to Frodo in The Fellowship of the Ring. It's clearly Gandalf. And if it's not, then it's just going to be a bit of a bait and switch, which comes across as a bit cheap. But already we've got him in Middle-earth in the Second Age, which is contrary to Tolkien's
1: book. Yes, yes. Gandalf was actually the last Istari to go to Middle-earth because he was very reluctant to go. He didn't want to corrupt any of the people in Middle-earth. He thought he wasn't worthy to go to Middle-earth. So it, I could see if it was, like, one of the blue wizards, that would make more sense. Or yeah, because even, I don't think
0: I don't think Tolkien fleshed those characters out, did he, in the books? Yeah, no. Yeah.
1: They and, and the blue wizards were off in the east, and so even Gandalf didn't really know what they were up to. So yeah. I think, n- narratively, it would make more sense if he was one of the blue wizards. But, you know, I'm also, like, you know, one of the major characters of Tolkien's Legendarium that was written out of the original trilogy was Glorfindel, who was... An elf, uh, one of the greatest warriors of the elven race. He fought and killed a Balrog in single combat, but in that process died. But because he was so honorable and so powerful, he was allowed to come back in the Second Age to look after Middle-earth for the Valar.
0: And obviously, Glorfindel is a major character, well, a, yeah. a sort of second-tier character in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings books, obviously, which take place in the Third Age.
1: Yeah. So, so the function in Tolkien's *Legendarium* of Glorfindel is the exact same that the Rings of Power is trying to use the Stranger for. So why not just take? Why not just make him Glorfindel? Like it, it would do the, be the exact same thing. <laughs> do
0: you want know the cynic in me tells me it's a Lord of the Rings show? We have yeah. to give them a wizard.
1: Yeah, I I, I realize that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and I think also moving on to the one topic that we're not really eager to talk about, but we have to. I think exactly the same thing applies to the Harfoots, and I think it's a case of, it's Lord of the Rings, we have to show people who are hobbits, or at least look like hobbits. Let's talk you, you about that little big-footed elephant in the room.
1: Yeah, you know, they're they're so cute, aren't they? Oh. You know, like, look, I like the movie Willow. Oh, yeah, I yeah. Li- I, li- I like Battle for Endor. <laughs> but the Harfoots in this show, it's like if during the movie Excalibur, you had five minutes of Ewoks, and then back to five minutes of Excalibur. Like, it's so tonally off. Yeah. And frustrating. And they're a bunch of little hypocrites. Oh, they, God, yeah. They talk to each other about, ah, oh, we're Harfets. never leave anyone behind in these very twee Irish accents. That's a perfect accent, John. <laughs> and then I could get cast as one of those little people easily. Yeah. Um, <laughs> See, and then I, I course... see you
0: John as more like Snagger or, or one of one of the Mordor orcs.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Aida>. <laughs> uh Anyway. And then, of course, if you're injured or sick or just a little bit too slow, they leave you the fuck behind. Oh, they
0: will dump your ass straight away. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you know, sorry, if you're not, um, if you're not keeping up, and we're, we're just leaving you like we did so and so and what's her name. And, you know, that guy that, you know, got crushed under a rock and we just didn't want to stop to help him. And what a bunch of little shit.
1: Yeah, so there's, I don't understand why these are the people that are teaching pseudo-Gandalf to be good. Yeah. Like, I understand the narrative idea behind it, but they're shown to be self-serving and immoral. So I don't, except for, you know the one main Harfoot that makes an emotional connection with the stranger. Yeah. But yeah, they're, you know, they contradict themselves. They slow the plot down. They're not fun or funny or endearing. So it just, it's just very frustrating to, yeah. to watch them.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, every time they came on, it, it's like a little bit of me died. And I was like, oh, this is just, you know, I, I understand that people that don't like the Lord of the Rings films. One of the things that probably, gets it back up is all the stuff in Hobbiton with the Hobbits. That's, I just think, you know, if that's the case, then none of those films are going to be for you. But as someone who grew to love those films before I read the books, I, I think what Peter Jackson did with the Hobbits and with Hobbiton, and especially in the extended edition of Fellowship of the Ring with that whole concerning Hobbit scene was just phenomenal. And I think the performances of Elijah Wood, Sean Astin, Dominic Monahan Monaghan and uh, Billy Boyd, are just mm-hmm. phenomenal, and the way those characters progress throughout the film. I don't see any of that potential here with uh, Markella Kavanagh, who plays Nori Brandyfoot, and Megan Richards, who plays Poppy Proudfellow. They're just, every time they're on screen, I just cringe, and I think they've got no part in this story. This all feels completely shoehorned in just to say, oh, look, Lord of the Rings, Hobbits.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and I don't want to slag... Any of these actors, because I really feel that the writing and the directing, the, the, their concern is not for a performance. No. It's just to to get a get me a wizard, get me some elves, get me some give me some hobbits, and we can have a Lord of the Rings show. And we'll throw a billion dollars at it. Yeah. So I, I feel bad that these actors have nothing to play or aren't given enough time to develop their, their characters. Uh, you know, something in Middle Earth needs to be wholesome. That's part of who Tolkien was. He, you know, he created Bilbo. He created forever. He created Tom Bombadil. Middle-earth is a place that allows for Tom Bombadil. So I understand why you need these characters who are, like, buoyed by the love of song and the love of community. But it just doesn't connect with these Harfoot characters.
0: Yeah, and there are, aside from the Harfoots, characters which have been put front and center in this show. And I, I think they're done for reasons other than the benefit of the story. And the story should come first and foremost with regards to whether you're writing a book, obviously. Whether you know regards to you making a film, and certainly with a television show, which is long form storytelling, you know has got advantages over film. You know, aside from the half, I I'll, I'll hit the head on. My biggest problem with this show is Galadriel, and the reason being, Cate Blanchett as Galadriel, for the relatively small period of time she was on screen in Peter Jackson's trilogy, and for the much longer time she was on screen in the Fellowship of the Ring. She was absolutely phenomenal, both in terms of her performance, her look, every line of dialogue she speaks, just the way she carried herself. Yeah. She didn't need to be seen climbing an ice wall in a suit of armor and and pushing her, her uh, elven team to the point where, you know, they were dying of exposure. Mm. She didn't need to single-handedly take on a snow troll whilst the rest of the crew just watched because she's so awesome and kick-ass. Galadriel, merely by speaking, commanded the screen. She just oozed charisma. She had a wisdom and, 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 a, and a soulfulness to her. She's just, a, like many of the characters in those films, a perfect character, a perfectly constructed character from you know the pages of Tolkien's work. And more with Clark as Galadriel in this show, she was, you know, aside from the half she was the thing which irked me the most because I don't recognize any of the Galadriel from Jackson's films and from the books in this character here. I see a totally different character and it's only in a few scenes in the last few episodes where, and there was one in particular, I, I think it was maybe in the, penultimate episode or episode six where she showed a bit of vulnerability Mm -hmm. and it's when she shows vulnerability that's when I start to be able to form any kind of attachment to her as a character. Like for the first five episodes or so, she's she's kind of snarling at characters, she's, she's kind of belittling everyone she comes across. You know that horrible line where she says, you have not seen what I have seen and I think it's to, I think he's, is, is she saying it to um, Elrond? Yeah. And then he says something in reply and she just repeats the line but with more force you have not seen what I have seen and it's just like the most cringeworthy dialogue. After all you have endured it is only natural to feel conflicted
1: conflicted I am grateful you have not known evil as I have but you have not seen what I've seen I have seen my share you have not seen what I have seen I have seen my share you have not I have you have not seen what I' have seen you have not seen what I
0: she just really from from the start of this show was a problem for me and, and for so many other people I've spoken to about this show and I've seen so much negativity about it and this is not criticism for her as an actress because I think ultimately it comes down to the writing and the direction like you say there's so many characters in this show which this this spouting dialogue which just seems like a cheap imitation of, of the stuff that Tolkien wrote and the stuff that then was adapted into Jackson's films but let's address John Um, a lot of the stuff and and it's not going to be easy to to kind of address this but but this show has had a lot of apparent backlash about some of the casting in particular a lot of the stuff about the casting of people of colour in particular you've got Ishmael Cruz Cordova who plays Arondia, and then you've got Sofia Numvetti as Princess Deezer for example this is just picking up the two most prominent um, characters of colour in this show now what are your thoughts John on on that whole alleged furore over the casting of people of color in a show which is based on a book which was mostly based on kind of Scandinavian mythology. Yeah, well, I
1: mean, Sophia Namvede uh, as Princess Disa, I thought she was phenomenal. I think she was one of the best, at least from the supporting characters, one of the best performers on the show. But, you know, I, I do think we sort of have to come to a reckoning as fans of fantasy. In Tolkien's mind, he was adapting or translating Norse and English and Saxon mythology into his own work. And so in his mind, these were all going to be white characters. He frequently describes elves or beautiful people as tall, pale, blonde, etc. But, like, you know, he was writing in the early 20th century in England. Like, that was his worldview, that was his perspective that was almost 100 years ago. So I just think, as a society, we have to move on from that and try and just be better. Like, it's not detracting from this show to have people of color in these roles. And I think, unfortunately, the people who are angry about that are also the loudest voices. And so I I don't fault Amazon for sort of deplatforming some of those reviews, but It then also gives Amazon a shield to hide behind any negative review as, well, this is racist backlash.
0: I've approached this from a point of view of I'm judging it based on what I can see. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that once you've been on Twitter for a certain amount of time, your Twitter feed is going to be tailored according to the type of people you follow. Yeah. Amazon – now, I've seen comments from various you know, legitimate sources attacking people who have made alleged racist comments about the casting in this show. I've seen comments attacking those people. But what I've not seen is any such racist comments from anyone on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Now, that could be just because I don't tend to follow that sort of people. Yeah. Yeah. But it could also be, and there have been many YouTube commentators of late, which have picked up on the fact that a lot of studios now, when something like Black Panther is announced, or or something where uh, you know, say for example, it's a big film by a female director, or it's a film where there's been a, a gender swap, or, or or something where a previously underseen you know minority is is front and center in a film in terms of either cre- the you know, the creative side or. In terms of a performer, making a big deal about all of this alleged racist backlash, I I haven't seen those comments. You know, I never saw those horrible comments that the Kelly Marie Tran had, you know, about her performance as Rose Tico in the Star Wars films. And that could just be because I don't follow those people, and therefore those people wouldn't pop up on my on my feed. But like you say, John, I do think Amazon have used it as a shield to kind of hide behind regarding the the sort of creative shortfalls of the show. And the reason I think that is because I don't legitimately feel you could put any sort of criticism against those two actors in particular because Arondia turns out to be easily one of the most interesting characters in this show. Oh yeah, sure. He's great. Right. Ishmael Cruz, Cordova, he seems to be one of the only actors in this show. I'd say probably one of maybe two actors in this show that understands how to act and convey the sort of timeless, ageless majesty and that sort of behind-the-eyes wisdom of a Tolkien mm-hmm. elf.
1: Yeah, because, you know, what you were saying earlier about Tolkien's time scale, I think part of that is to, you know, separate the existence of elves and the existence of humans. Because if an elf can go to war for a thousand years and come back and still have, like, 90% of their life to go... Yeah. Their uh, their thinking is on a different scale than humans because if because if well all we need to do is hold out for another 100 years and we'll beat Sauron, well that's not good enough for a human. Yeah. And so that can really be the basis for strife between the good peoples of Middle-earth. Yeah. And I don't think this show understands that, but Arondir, he understands that.
0: Yeah. He's got this relationship with Bronwyn, who he, is a yeah. human. You know, lives in the Southlands. Another thing which has been created for the show because, you know, the Southlands, which would later become Mordor. I don't believe there's any reference in Tolkien to what Mordor was before. And I certainly don't think the term the Southlands was something they used. I might be wrong. But yeah, he's got this relationship with a human, Bronwyn, a mortal. And, you know, you can just see the pain behind his eyes about the fact that it's like this forbidden, you know, romance. He he just conveys something which every other actor in this show who plays an elf just completely fails to grasp. I think the only other one that comes close maybe is the guy who plays gil and I think that may be a personal thing because I just think they cast someone who looks so much like the actor who you only see very briefly in the prologue of The Fellowship but they cast someone who looks almost exactly like him and I think for me, then, that's that sort of kind of connective tissue which links me back to that character. And he also does seem to convey himself in a similar way to what, you know, we saw Martin Sokas as Caliborn. Yeah. And and also then, like the aforementioned Kate Blanchett. And then you've got Hugo Weaving as Elrond. The Elrond in this show, he just it doesn't seem anything like what I perceive the character to be like. You know, we're talking about a character that's thousands of years old. Yeah, you know, he's he's young
1: compared to Gilgalad, but he's still like a thousand years old, at yeah. least. Yeah. Yeah. Or
0: more, more than that. But going back to the point I'm trying to make is those two examples I've picked it, Aran easily one of the most interesting characters, and I think the color of his skin is absolutely irrelevant to the story. Yeah.
1: Now, you know, I, I did get into it. With a customer at my store just yesterday about how dare they introduce this gay character in this DC comp. So these assholes are out there. But the, the fact that I'm bringing up this per- so even in, in my life, their presence is their, the way the, my dedication to thinking about them is exponentially more than their numbers because it really fucking bothered me. That this guy came to my store and complained about this. Yeah, I get like one of those guys a month. Right. You know, and so, so I can like say they're, they're, they're very much a very minority. Yeah. yeah. Yes, but just the fact, but that conversation is what I'm still thinking about. Mm. So e- even in my perception of fandom, it's going to really twist it just because of how much i'm thinking about it so it's difficult for me to sort of objectively examine the volume of people who have these opinions and the volume that they are speaking at
0: but that's the thing i'm trying to address you see because i'm looking from my own point of view i've spoken to a lot of people about this show Mm -hmm. and not a single one of them has complained about the color of skin of any of the actors cast in any of the roles in this show there's been no complaints Yeah. let's talk about Sophia Nunverti as Princess Disa because I've got to say it Gimli jokes about the fact that um, female dwarves have to have beards it's never going to work on screen yeah but I've got to see, having now seen you know all of her scenes in this first season in their entirety the warmth that you have between her and Elrond because they've got a friendship obviously she's married to Durin Elrond's close one of his best friends and also then her relationship with Durin himself there's just a warmth to her character which the show needed, and and there's also there's also like a humorous exchanges between her and Elrond. The fact that they know each other and they joke about Durin and they kind of make fun of him and and stuff like that. I'm not thinking, yeah, she shouldn't be played by a black actress. That's not entering my mind at any point at all, and. That's not been at any point brought up in any of the hundreds of discussions I've had with people about this show. So the fact that Amazon is just putting so much emphasis on this as being the single point of criticism which everyone is leveling at this show. It's like, no, it's not. Because if you actually take time to read any number of these reviews which are popping up on IMDb or or any other sort of review platform, they're not. And I've looked on IMDb at reams of reviews about this show. People are not attacking the colour of people's skin in the casting. They're attacking the writing and the quality of the characterisations in the, in the show. And to concentrate on the race issue, I think, is... I think it's also immoral if it isn't actually, you know, the, the main point of discussion from the vast majority of people. Yeah, it could be a horrible little vocal minority which is saying those things. But let's just leave them as they are under a rock where they belong. And let's just address the main problems with this show. Because this show isn't done now. This show has only just begun, and if Amazon yeah. are going to be responsible showrunners and they're going to take on board the reams of criticism which are being thrown at them, don't don't take reviews off and don't take all those one-star reviews off just because you don't like them. Pay attention to them, sift you know the shit from the quality, and look at the quality ones which are level-headed criticism, and say, okay, then um, you know we've paid a billion dollars for this show or five hundred million, whatever they paid to the Tolkien estate for you know the the license they've got. Let's make a better effort going forward to use it.
1: You, you brought up Kelly Marie Tran earlier, and I know she did get a lot of backlash on her social media, which is unconscionable. Yeah. But the cruelest thing that was done to her and to John Boyega...
0: They were sidelined. Was-
1: was by Disney sidelining yeah, those fucking side-lining characters, them. and or just look at John Boyega's character's poster. Oh, the, the size poster, of his the, character for on the on his poster oh, for, the, for the Chinese market. Oh like, my God, reprehensible! That's all Disney, you know. So it's
0: fucking disgusting studios, what they did. <laughs> and for people who don't studios, know what we're talking about, in the, the the posters for the Abrams trilogy, the sequel trilogy, call them what you want, for the posters for the Chinese market, John Boyega's character of Finn was actually reduced greatly in size on the posters. I wonder why. Look, Elsa, if you want the answer to that question as to why they would do that for the Chinese market, but my God, what does that tell you about, you know, these corporate minds and their ultimate priorities?
1: So I'm sure there were discussions at Amazon, like there were at Disney, how do we address this issue? Yeah. I'm positive they had a plan to say, well, whatever negative back, I mean, this is this is getting into some tinfoil hat territory, but... It is conceivable that they had a plan to, instead of doing what Disney did, which was very visible and visibly reprehensible, do sort of the opposite and go and put that out in front and then use that as a shield from any actual fan yeah. criticism.
0: Yeah. Right, John. What characters in the show did you like?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Arondir, I lo- uh, loved Arondir. I did find Adar fascinating. Oh yeah. Uh, is sort of introduced as a possible Sauron, but it was kind of pretty clear that that was sort of a red herring. Yeah. But the fact that it was a first generation orc, one of the original elves in the first age, who was twisted and malformed by magic by the original Dark Lord Morgoth into being one of his servants. By in Tolkien's own words, that is the worst sin committed by Morgoth to take these beings and twist them into his own service through torture and dark sorcery so this is one of the original maybe one of the last remaining first generation orcs who is now the quote-unquote father of the orcs that we're much more familiar with and so he is trying to make a home for this population of people that both sauron and the elves have sought to exterminate i think that is an example of the show expanding tokens world in a way that we weren't expecting Doing so with a lot of intelligence and picking an actor who's able to handle the material and a, a great makeup job as well, because he's an excellent sort of melding of orcish and elvish traits. So just like full marks on the character of Adar.
0: Yeah, um, I think Owen Arthur as Durin was great. And yes, would, for sure. Yeah, we briefly saw then Peter Milan, who you would have known from Train Spotting, as, as as his father, Durin the Third. I thought he was good. Mm-hmm. Like I say, from a point of view of how he looked, I thought gil was great. Not so much in terms then of his acting. I thought Charlie Vickers as Halbrand, or as everyone was calling him, not Sauron. <laughs> <laughs> I, I liked him. I, I, yeah. I liked him until it was confirmed that he was Sauron, at which point I was like, no. This, is, this has all been done wrong. It should have been done yeah. as written. He should have taken elven form and been this... Yeah. Overly beautiful-looking Elven man.
1: What what really bothered me about the use of Halbrand Hal is that him being Sauron and the way they is sort of initiated Galadriel's relationship with him is that it makes Galadriel very stupid. Yeah, because they initially meet sort of out in the middle of the ocean. Halbrand's on a raft with a few survivors from a shipwreck. Then, out of nowhere, comes both a storm and a sea monster. Halbrand sort of sacrifices everybody else as a distraction for the sea monster, saves himself. Then when Galadriel is drowning, he saves her. Then they're both sort of taken to Numenor. He's able to charm blacksmiths, peasants, and royalty with a few sentences into doing what he wants. And she's convinced that he's the king of the Southlands because he has his little pouch. So he clearly, he maybe has like powers over the weather. It almost seems like he certainly possesses supernatural powers of persuasion. Um, he ha- he's very cagey about his past, and then it takes the last episode for Gladiol to even like look up the lineage of the Kings of the Southlands. Like it, she should have been suspicious of him five minutes after meeting him. Yeah, but instead she's totally like, oh, this is the savior Middle Earth has been looking for. It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand why. Cause she's suspicious of the motivations of her fellow elves. So yeah. why is she so trusting about this guy that she just met and just saw kill three or four innocent humans? It doesn't make sense.
0: No. Yeah. I, I liked Lloyd Owen as Elendio. Yes. I yes. saw in him the possibility that he could one day grow to be the, the king that we saw briefly at the you know in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring. And he also had he, he had the gravitas to him and you could see he would potentially be a great leader of men and that is a character archetype that we are no longer allowed to have in 2022 sorry but you know the 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 quantity of strong male characters is greatly diminished in recent times in 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 a lot of franchises and to see a character like him just a normal heroic male character like we saw with Aragorn and Boromir and characters like that in in in, in Peter Jackson's films. It's nice to see a character like him and he just brought a lot to the role. However, I didn't like you know his son Messiael doer. I understood where they were going with putting that weakness in, but when you have those scenes where you can almost hear whatever it is whispering to him, it shows his later weakness when he succumbs to the to the ring. And that isn't really weakness because anyone, anyone can succumb to the rings gandalf knew that he could they all knew so putting this sort of thing so earlier on even before the ring has been created it just makes no sense it's just silly and it's setting up what we know is going to happen but you don't need to set that up you can show him to be the most heroic character he's still going to succumb to the ring
1: and yet in tolkien's writing isildur was resisting the ring he was taking it to Elrond when he was ambushed by orcs and killed. So,
0: But then, but then ultimately he took it to, to Mount Doom Yeah, and he failed to throw in it. But yeah. nobody could resist the ring at that point because the ring at its ultimate point of where it's facing its own doom is going to get its claws into whoever has it and it's going to stop them from doing it.
1: Because you know, Isildur, the the dramatic irony of that character is that he's so noble and so powerful. Where he's the guy that cut the ring from Sauron's hand. Yeah. When Elendil, while Elendil was killed, it was Isildur who slew Sauron. And even somebody that strong, that noble, could
0: succumb to the ring. So yeah, you, it's, you, it's like doesn't Sauron says there are none who can resist it?
1: Yeah, exactly. So you, you need to have somebody. Who can portray that in this show? Otherwise, you're not doing Isildur. I, I, I'm hoping in later seasons we get to see him rise to the occasion, maybe even surpass his father. But it doesn't seem like they're writing
0: him that way. John, what do you think about the whole Mithril subplot and how that is tied into the fate of the elves? I, it's very frustrating because obviously
1: there's none of that in Tolkien's Legendarium that the elves needed Mithril to prevent them from fading away. There is a lot of elves fading away themes in Tolkien, so I understand where that's coming from. But to all of a sudden be like, oh, we have like three weeks or else we're all going to die. <laughs> seems pretty silly and sudden, especially for the elves. But what frustrated me the most is that, you know, the characters the show wants us to be on the side of, you know, Elrond and Durin, therefore mining for more mithril, delving deeper and deeper into the dark depths of the Lonely Mountain or or, or uh, Kaza Doom, sorry. But we know as viewers who have probably watched the Lord of the Rings movie, that's what led to the extinction of the Dwarven Kingdom yeah. because they unleashed a the Balrog. They, so, delved, they
0: delved too uh, greedily they, and too deeply.
1: Yeah, so I don't understand why... I don't understand what the show is trying to do. It seems like from a dramatic perspective that King Durn is being cruel and cold and not, you know, hearing the needs of his people. But we know as people who have seen movies that they're all going to get killed by the Balrog. Yeah. So the show is contradicting themselves, and it takes away the tragedy of the dissolution of King Durin and Prince Durin's very profound
0: love as father and son. Right, let's talk about John. Hopefully this section isn't too brief, but what things does the show get right?
1: Like I said, the music, how it looks, um, I love the look of Numenor. I, I love their armor. Just a, a great design that's both Middle Earth but also, like, ancient Earth. Like, it looks like it came from the imagination of somebody from 3,000 years ago. I, I really dig that. The post-apocalyptic look uh, after Mount Doom erupts that was a really harrowing sequence although it is kind of silly that all the main characters have plot armor and escape almost unscathed except for the Queen of Numenor gets blinded uh, with no no physical scars at all she's still an incredibly beautiful actress John,
0: I'll I'll be up front I am not a qualified geologist but I am fairly sure (laughs) that if you douse uh, an underground river of molten hot magma (laughs) Yeah. With water, that is not going to cause a huge, endless volcanic eruption. No. That whole MacGuffin, the whole thing yeah. with the sword ultimately being a key, which was created in the hope that it's one human who had fallen under Adar's spell would then take to this location and activate in order to set up this huge MacGuffin mouse trap sort of call it what you will it's just the most lame silly writing that just completely undermines the intelligence of the viewer it, it, just... it
1: seems like they could have done that at any time Like, yeah. So, like, Why would you set up this whole system to start a volcanic eruption and set up the key to do it and then not turn the key? Like, it. I understand the need for a MacGuffin in, in a fantasy story that's kind of what the One Ring is but it just didn't work no. narratively in, in this show at, no. at all.
0: No. And again, this part was supposed to be the things I guess right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. The look of the show. Yeah. The look of the show.
1: Yeah. The look at the, the characterization of Adar, um, I really thought the sequence where Arondir was like enslaved to the orcs that was very painful and distressing you know because
0: it's gory and violent and when they said they set the wags on uh, that was the episode where the wags were like ripping people's guts out yeah and you know you had that one character having their throat cut by the orc you know it was a a level of distress and violence and stuff which we which we'd not seen in peter jackson's films
1: and it, it shows the depths that middle earth can take you to you know yeah. you have an elf but one of the highest beings in, in this world taken as low as any living being could go mm-hmm. and the fact that you had two of the strongest performers sort of going head to head with each other in in scenes just made everything stronger
0: yeah you know the, when we first saw numino i i was like wow yeah that is how you imagine the place like when you when you first see the argonath in Fellowship of the Ring. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of, you know, they're like centuries old by that point. Uh, you, you can see the former majesty of of, of Numenor, and, you know, the the new architecture and that sort of stuff. But to see it in its prime, yeah, it, it, it looked fantastic. The production design in the show is just incredible. Absolutely. Although there are areas where I look at it and I think it's still kind of, it, it reaches exceeding its grasp and it's not getting things right in the way that the Lord of the Rings films did because some of the costumes when i look at some of the armor i just think yeah it's a high bar it's or the highest bar that was set by by you know richard taylor and wetter workshop and, and all of his crew and all of the incredible work that they did And i don't think that this show has reached that in terms of that sort of like the the minute detail of the costumes but again that is a minor nitpick because in comparison to any other number of shows that we're getting at the moment and have got in the last few years Yeah, I think the production design, in general, the visual effects. I also like the music, you know, Bear McCreary's music. It's fitting. I'm not going to say it's as good as what, anywhere near as good as what Howard Shaw did with Lord of the Rings films and also got to say with the subsequent Hobbit films because he made some cracking scores for those films as well. Yeah. But yeah, it looks phenomenal. And there there are moments where you just see these establishing shots of the landscape. um, and It just looks great. Even Little Things, when they threw in that very brief shot of the Ents um, in an earlier episode, I thought that looked phenomenal. And then the bit with the stranger we later find out to be not Gandalf is, is you know, that <laughs> that uh, meteorite is, is going across the sky, and then you've got Arondia and Bronwyn watching it. And that was actually one of our Film 89 shots of the day a few weeks back, because it was just such a jaw-dropping shot. It's full of incredible visual stuff like yeah. that. And then, you know,
1: intimate moments between Prince Princess Disa and Durin. So, like, it the show is able to capture intimacy yeah. and friendship and quietness and also grand spectacle. So, you know, in, in this 11 hour epic, there's 15 or 20 minutes where <laughs> I'm yeah. able to like a step out of myself and enjoy it. But I'm never thinking what's going to happen next. I'm no. always thinking, what are they going to do now? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm always second-guessing the writers. I'm thinking, is this revelation a lie, a, a, a misdirect? I'm, I'm never I'm never in the story. I'm yeah. always two or three steps removed from it.
0: And there's huge portions, John, where, like, logic gets thrown completely out of the window. And in particular by that, I mean, say, so for example, when uh, Galadriel and Elendil have left Numenor and they're making mm-hmm. their way to Middle-earth uh, on ships and then all of a sudden they they've landed and they're on horseback and they're making their way to exactly where they need to go there's no establishing little bit of narrative like a little nugget of of, of, a, of a plot point really that tells us how they have obtained the information which tells them where they need to go because middle earth is this huge place yeah they yeah. have fast travel turned on yeah sure. exactly and they know exactly where to go you talk about plot armor there's there's, there's all sorts of like plot contrivances and things which were just not thought out well at all you know if if you take too long to think about some of the you know the failings of this show in terms of, of just the plot itself it really just baffles and clearly the efforts of the show have been put into the production design and the look of the show and the thing that costs the least the writing it, yeah. it's just it's, there, it's not there
1: Yeah, I I just I don't know what the motivation or what the producers are thinking, what the showrunners are thinking, you know, because if you had just spent more time in the writing stages, you would have had a more fully realized story. So I, I don't understand why you're able to throw this much money at a show and not care about, like, the core structure of these characters, of what's going on. And I think that ultimately comes from trying to do too much because they're they're taking a listing of events over three thousand years and condensing it into like a couple years in show canon, I guess. And I think if you were just gonna tell like the story of Sauron as Anatar in Eregion, or Sauron in, in Numenor and fomenting the the downfall of Numenor, or just the story of Galadriel going from the the brash, proud, even sinful, but very powerful elf in the First and Second Age to the elf we, we know in the Lord of the Rings movies. I think any of those would have been a much more cohesive story and could have been all could have been just as grand as this one but the fact that they're just trying to encapsulate thousands of years into one narrative like it it just doesn't fit it's like trying to adapt a, a history textbook
0: in, into a movie yeah. there's just not a story there no and and there's this is moments of sheer bang your head on the table stupidity it's like when those three witches as they kind of appear to be when you know, yeah. see them in their true form
1: there's like the the hermit the aesthetic and yeah yeah.
0: now whatever they're supposed to be yeah (laughs) um, and ultimately they're supposed to be servants of Sauron if they can't through their you know incredible magic powers identify him and and he's actually quite the opposite of what Sauron is yeah it's like well how, how fucking dumb are you yeah,
1: you know, now, like, Istari and Sauron are both the same class of being, like, Maiar So, full, like, lesser angels. I yeah, guess.
0: that's right. And are we to think then that Sauron, who was a servant of Morgoth, who was, like, you know, the big bad of the first age, following the fall of Morgoth, Sauron then ended up in a situation where he was, what, up in space and ended up crashing back to Earth? Is that what they're, you know, thinking has happened to him?
1: Yeah, I, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't yeah. know why they wouldn't. I understand why they might be pursuing an Astari to try and get information on him, try to understand what he's doing, why he's in middle Earth. I understand why they want to kill an Astari because yeah. he's probably there to stop Sauron. Yeah, but why they would think it's Sauron. I, I don't I understand why maybe the audience would be confused about who he is because there's so many red herrings about who. The stranger is and it takes the menace out of these three villains who are supposed to be so evil but then are
0: pretty summarily dispatched. Mm. So when we eventually find out that uh, Harbrand is actually Sauron he, he kind of is expelled and, and, and makes his way back to, to Mordor. Before that you've got a scene where he kind of pulls Galadriel into some sort of dream or or vision or whatever where they're back on the raft where they first met. And and he then is trying to seduce her. And is there any hint of anything like that in the box that he and Galadriel had any kind of relationship like that?
1: No. Nothing at all. No, but Sauron is established as having very strong powers of mental manipulation, persuasion, and shapeshifting. So the fact that he would do try this is—I I don't think—is going
0: against anything that Tolkien wrote. But what I mean, John, is the establishment of the relationship between oh, him yeah. and Galadriel, and the fact that it's—it's it's done with him in human form, and they've completely ignored the fact that he was anatar. He was—he took the form of an elf. Yeah. Why have they not done that? It, it, like you say, it's because it's kind of like it's got this sort of, oh, what's the twist of the week going to be? You yeah, know, you know, you've got all of this kind of bait and switch, and it's like, oh, this character that we, you know, we we wanted you to like actually isn't, you know, what they they profess to be, and. They're they're just
1: second guessing audience expectations and then trying to subvert those expectations rather than just trying to write a, a good story. There there's just too much like well well what are fans gonna think? What are, what are the theories gonna be? So we have to subvert those theories in this way and and then and you can't write a satisfying story like that. Yeah. What made me the angriest about that is that the speech. Galadriel gives in Lord of the Rings when Frodo, Officer of the Ring, is now, by the dint of the show, an echo of what Sauron said to her. And for me, Galadriel refusing the ring is the climax of her story, her 10,000 year life of being brash and proud and sinful and being offered the power to right the wrongs of her past, to slay... The person she detests most in the world to rule Middle Earth with a hammer of light. And she says, no, I don't need it anymore. I've passed the test. And so for this show to turn that into her quoting Sauron, Mm. it fuck off because yeah he says to me he says pure fan service you'll
0: be stronger than the foundations of the earth the exact line that she says when frodo sees her briefly turn into dark galadriel and it's like no do not do this do not in any way sully you know the perfect stuff that we saw in those films
1: and especially because so much of galadriel's majesty in those movies Separate from everything Tolkien wrote, Cate Blanchett is one of the best actors alive, mm-hmm. one of the best actors of her generation. And so you, you're you piggybacking off of those, like, six minutes of screen time that she had, of, of, like, of perfection. And you haven't earned it, you know? You don't get to make me think of those moments in that amazing movie by just having other actors say that dialogue. It, it's...
0: It, Sorry. John by this point now I think it's futile To sort of reiterate the question <laughs> And ask you what else you liked about the show So are there any other things That got John Arminio grinding his teeth Are there any other things Which if you don't mention them now When we stop recording then you think thinking Shit I wish I'd said that
1: Just, I, 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 I'm I, just wondering where some of these Characters are like Kelleborn, Like why isn't he around It, it seems well, no, he's, weird
0: he's, uh, According to what Gladriel said he's, he's missing in action and has been for quite a long time. Well, I think essentially she actually said he died.
1: Well, okay, so this is another missed opportunity for the show because one of the most frustrating things about readers have about Caliborne is that he's explicitly prejudiced against dwarves Mm -hmm. in, in the books. He's very cruel and dismissive to Gimli when he shows up. Uh, And so it's kind of strange, you know, like, why would somebody as wise and powerful as Galadriel be married to this, you know, bigot? But if he was around and he witnesses the dwarves dwell deep and unleash a Balrog, Mm. one of the great scourges of the elves for thousands of years, then you could maybe understand why he would be so angry at the presence of Gimli in Lothlorien. But the fact that he's not around takes that opportunity away. Uh, So, you know, it just... The show is just riddled with so many missed opportunities to tie itself into Tolkien's work and to tell, you know, fully realized stories. And so I I don't, you know, I'm not angry. I'm
0: just disappointed, Rings of Power. (laughs) Do you know, John, when we talk about how the show looks, I just remembered one of the things that... And, and being from the first episode, it's, it's now furthest back in my in my memory. But there was that kind of like the the, the prologue, if you'll call it that, the, the kind of mm-hmm. setting up of of what happened in the first age, and it showed that battle with the um, fell beasts. Fell fel beasts. Yeah. Okay. Beast. It, it looked like to be a, a fell beast or something attacking an eagle, and then the eagle was like in flames, and it, and it, it kind of fell to the ground. You know, during this huge battle and it looked incredible. Yeah. And what that should have been in the first episode is a hint to somewhere where this where this series went, because I'm not saying that every series should have a big climactic thing that it's built into, but ultimately there was a lack of that sort of epic confrontation. This is a this is a nine hour plus middle earth story. And what do we have in terms of that? There was—I don't mean in terms of—you know—because we saw plenty of action in this show, and a lot of it was well done. But I just think there was a lack of stuff on that scale. Now, if the show is building to that, great. But there's nothing about this show that that gives me that much faith going forward that they've got these big epic plans for these—you know—huge confrontations further down the line. Yeah, nothing on the scale of Helm's Deep. Maybe a rondier
1: in in the mud pits sort of approaches the battle that Boromir has with, with the orcs, like his last stand. Um, but, yeah, other than that, none of the – even if the show is just all flashbang, none of it approaches the, the flashbang that
0: Peter Jackson achieved in his movies 20 years ago. No, that's right. And there were moments in this show which they, – they were – You know, they were breathtaking. Like, after the eruption of of Mount Doom, the following episode where you had that just sort of fiery hell furnace with all the characters walking around. And I actually thought, how the hell did they film this? Yeah, it's... it's, it's Where did they film this? It Mm -hmm. looked superb. So there's things from that point of view that certain areas of the production are getting things right. And it's the areas which are the ones which are clearly getting most of the money. and, And the resources are being put in that direction. And like I say, I'll go back to what I've said so many times on this podcast. It actually drives me insane. I'm just repeating myself. But good writing costs nothing. Just get the right people in. And this is what they need to do going forward now. They need to just get rid of everyone involved in the writing staff you know, that has given us what you know, what they have so far. Unless they can say, well, actually, you've not been listening to what I've been saying. I've been the quiet voice here. This is what I think. Get rid of everyone. Bring people in, you know, even if you have to. And why don't they go to... Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh and Philippa Bynes, go to them as a sort of, look, we think we could have done better, we know we should have done better. If they've got any sort of passion for this thing that they've got and and any sort of sense of responsibility for this thing that they are nurturing into a potentially great show X amount of seasons down the line, then that's what they need to do. And it doesn't have to be those three, but there are any number of people out there, talented writers. And unfortunately, it just might be a, a you know a comment on how modern Hollywood and how the you know the, the television production system is set up that the people with the talent are, are very rarely the ones who get the opportunity to be put in the position where they can put their creative input into something like this yeah.
1: and and I'm sure that there's a thousand talented people on the show but 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 I think that the economic pressures that go into making something this enormous are just flattening that creative voice. And it just makes me say like, I mean, I know that I'm, I think, the lone person at Film 89 who likes Lower Decks, Star Trek Lower Decks, but the most recent episode written by a really great comedian named Ben Rogers touches on the silliness of the Star Wars uh, sequels, how they go back and contradict each other. It makes references to pretty much every single a Star Trek movie, and it makes a really heartfelt statement about what happens when we judge ourselves based purely on our creative and professional output. And that's in 22 minutes. There are great writers out there able to, to make great stories with when they're given the opportunity, and I'm pretty sure those writers are probably working on this show. You know, like we started the podcast talking about, I don't trust
0: Amazon to let those creatives do their jobs correct. Yeah. And you know John you say there about that 22 minute episode of Lower Decks I think this is one of this show's biggest problems is the episodes are just too long. Yeah for sure. But cut, But again it's not like there's ex, for you to cut off the extraneous fat from the meat. There's such little quality meat in this show anyway that you're going to be left with nothing. Next to nothing. Yeah. I, I just there is a way this show should have been written. There is a way they should have approached it and the way the plot has been constructed going against a lot of the stuff you know in in Tolkien's skeleton of a story which you know covers what happened in the second age. I just think they've done it all wrong or a lot of it wrong and I think it's going to take a hell of a lot of work now to undo what they've done here but... I will still be there for season two. It has not sickened me to the point that some shows have where I've just thought, you know what, this show has had me along now for X amount of uh, episodes or seasons and now I'm going to call it call it a day, like I did with shows like The Walking Dead. I'm going to keep going with this because there's nothing else Middle Earth related that we're going to yep. get and I still got that attachment from years ago because of Peter Jackson's original uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy I, I, I've got that attachment there and I've got that desire to see Middle Earth done right so because of that and that alone I will stick with it but it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of talent uh, to be thrown towards this show and I just don't think Amazon are humble enough to realize that yeah they've messed up they've messed up i've been thinking a lot about my relationship to the show
1: and to tolkien and about just adaptations in general the greatest sci-fi epic of all time moonraker yeah is bears no resemblance to the source material yeah like it's called moon the book's called moonraker and there's a guy named drax in it yeah that's that's it but do i love the movie moonraker yes so
0: well john that's a bit of a silly question it's like saying do i like breathing yeah (laughs) obviously
1: yeah So what's stopping me from liking an adaptation of Lord of the Rings that has a very loose relationship with the text? But I don't think that this show can stand on its own without me already having affection for the source material. Like you can easily enjoy Casino Royale or Moonraker or what have you without never reading an Ian Fleming novel. But the only reason... I'm still watching this is because of my relationship to Tolkien. The fact that I've read his works numerous times. The fact that every metal band i listen to has 18 songs about Lord of the Rings. Like, I just have too much of an affection for that world. And it it just wouldn't grab me without it Hmm. already there.
0: It's like for every scene where you see Rondier kind of barely hiding the fact that he's got a love for a woman that he knows he'll have to watch die if, you know, he... yeah takes on a relationship with her. And then you've got those nice scenes between Princess Deezer and, and Elrond, where you've got that warmth between them. And then you've got some of the stunning visuals in the show. For every little bit of that, you've got dozens of scenes of the Harfoots and then and then that wonderful shot of Galadriel on horseback, where it looks like she's got a pineapple shoved up her backside. <laughs> literally looks like it's the most pained form of expression of joy I've ever seen and it was I actually outright laughed I laughed out loud when I saw it and you know everyone I spoke to about that episode was just like oh what was it with a shot of Galadriel on the horseback what were they doing
1: yeah they're like Mordford Clark they're not doing her any favours
0: with- I, I genuinely think John what they did was they filmed it as was and then later said oh we, no, we actually should, no, we should have told you to express complete joy in this scene, <laughs> and it looked then like they'd in in a computer made her smile using CGI. Mm. It, it just looked that bad. It just didn't look real. It looked silly. But yeah, you know, we've we've got stuff like that then scattered throughout it, and it upsets me. <laughs> that yeah. You know, and ultimately, John, I don't look. You, you look at the Lord of the Rings films and the the, the sheer talent and, and recognizable actors you had in that. And in this show, we've got no one. And you don't have to have recognized recognized actors for it to be good. But there's no one here. There's no one to ever go toe to toe with Ian McKellen and Kate yep. Blanchett, Hugo Weaving, Sean Astin, and Sean Bean. And I, I just the list goes on and on and on. But there's yeah, no know, one here that that is showing me that level of talent. And the few that are, I think, are subject to such poor writing and, and direction that they haven't got a chance.
1: Yeah, You know, like, there's really something to be said for what a great casting director Peter Jackson is. Because that murderer's row of actors, like, they were all known in 1999, but they weren't the people they are now, for sure. Like, you know, Hugo Weaving became a superstar. Not like Tom Cruise, but you know what I mean, it, Sean Bean is more famous now than than he, than he's ever been, like Elijah Wood. Sean Astin, like all, all these people who had these careers elevated exponentially because of those movies, they were chosen by Peter Jackson. And, you know, Peter Jackson's first movie, he cast Cate Blanchett and Mel- Melanie Linsky, who were complete unknowns. I think that's one of his most underestimated talents. And Amazon did not get somebody with that eye. And like we've said, there are clearly very talented actors on this show, but not to the extent that they were able to elevate the material, or, or at least were not given the room to perform to their greatest
0: ability. Yeah. Ah, oh, John, let's bring it to a close. Sure. Give me your final thoughts on Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, and your score out of 10 for the first season. You know, I I really I really tried to like it.
1: Whether the racist backlash is real, manufactured, if it's a shield, like uh, there's clearly a lot of toxicity and racism that was brought up around the show, and that makes me very angry, and that makes me instinctually want to defend the show, and I'll certainly defend it on on those grounds but i just i started every episode with a heavy sigh you know and i didn't hate it and i'm gonna watch the next season but you know like i said i'm only here because it's middle earth i'd rather watch rob zombies the monsters again than
0: watch any episode (laughs) of
1: this show again so i'll i'll give it i'll give it a generous six out of ten
0: uh i i didn't hate this show but then i think i went into this show with low expectations from the start because as much as that third trailer impressed me i had a nagging feeling that it was just trying to cover up for the the backlash against the first two trailers and i immediately identified the lack of 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 any big names in the show from both a behind the scenes point of view and also in particular the casting there were some beautiful things to behold in this show but visuals alone just you know secondary to a good story and it lacked a good story. It lacked good characters. And ultimately, the main failings of this show are, the, you know, from the point of view of the writing. And if you take something as beloved and, and revered as The Lord of the Rings, which it has been shown in 11 hours and 20 minutes of film made by Peter Jackson and co in you know the late 90s and early 2000s, you can take those writings with not a huge amount of money and you can turn them into something... Remarkable for me, three of the greatest films you'll ever see. It can be done with the right people, and because this is an ongoing enterprise now, I think Amazon really do need to get their heads out of their asses to get rid of any kind of arrogance on their part and to be quite humble about the fact that they've got this opportunity to create a show for the ages. Let's just do it as let's just do an an abrupt about turn. Let's get the right people on board and let's get this right because this is possibly the last time anyone would ever adapt a Lord of the Rings thing you know to this scale yeah so I have to look at what this season has done as a whole I think it's caused more problems than it needed to do I won't be in a rush to watch any of it again although it's not irritated me to the point where I won't watch season 2 but in terms of what this show could have been and what it should have been I think it's failed massively it really has so I have to be objective about it and I'm going to have to give it a 4 out of 10 as much okay. as that pains me to do that so given you've given it a 6 John so the film 89 verdict for the first season of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power is a 5 out of 10 <laughs> I hate this deflated Sucks. feeling after yeah. we talk about something that should have been great I really do, I take no pleasure in it whatsoever but like I say I'm Throwing down the gauntlet to you Amazon now, as as John is, do better, please.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, there's there's still the Peter Jackson movies. There's still you know a myriad of heavy metal bands that sing about Lord of the Rings. Like check out some Summoning Records people. Oh my God, I I, I wish um, Amazon would have just done like three standalone Lord of the Rings movies. Like here's your Baron and Luthien movie or, or
0: something. But yeah, and instead there's this. Well, they did they, they did Baron and Luthien with Arondia and Bronwyn. Sure. So, John, where can people find you on social media if they want to uh, hit you up, talk about uh, comic books, film, television, metal? Please. Uh,
1: I'm at Quasar Sniffer on. Twitter, Instagram. I am working at Comics Connection in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Come check us out if you're ever in the area. Um, Pretty soon, me and Scott Thoreau of Zebras in America are going to be launching a sort of monthly podcast called Popcorn Eschaton, where we explore um, spirituality in movies, whether that's Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, esoteric stuff, what have you. So be on the lookout for that.
0: Cool. So that's it. Uh, that's our review of The Lord of the Rings, uh, The Rings of Power. Uh, I must apologize to all for our, you know, our very patient listeners for the huge gap of two months between episodes. Firm 89 Towers has been undergoing some pretty major renovation work, which has prevented us from giving you your regular dose of Firm 89 goodness. But you'll be glad to hear that we're going to be smashing out four or five episodes based on some really great topics over the next uh, few weeks with the return of Stephen Simpson. Tony Stella, Dave Eves, and Stephen Saunders. We'll be covering some of our most requested films, such as the 60th anniversary of the big screen debut of A Certain British Secret Agent, another multi-Oscar winning historical epic from the same year, as well as our huge dive back into Middle Earth done properly with our second part of our celebration of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy with our episode on The Two Towers. Really looking forward to that one. So lots of goodies to come. Uh, thank you all for your continued support you can follow me on twitter and facebook at sky movies and the rest of the film 89 crew you can find links to their um, individual accounts on film 89 uk on twitter and facebook please if you want to hit us up with your requests for future episodes uh, or or just general discussion you can dm us or email us at admin at film89.co.uk please subscribe if you haven't already and leave us a positive review on apple podcasts That really will do a lot for us. But for now, it just remains for me to say be safe, be good to one another, but more importantly, stay classy.